This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. We are joined by Dr. Andre Porchita here on the COVID Report. Dr. Porchita, thank you so much for joining us and uh, welcome to the COVID Report. Good evening to you and to the listeners and thank you for inviting me. Again, thank you so much for having this discussion with us, Doctor. Now to start is off exploring the ways in which uh, people's health has been impacted by this pandemic due to the amount of weight that they may have been. You heard me go through those statistics uh, from that national survey that was conducted speaking to at least 2,000 South Africans over the last two months. Could you please, for the benefit of those tuned in and listening, further make differentiate for us between obesity and being overweight? Yes, I, I think that's, a, that's the pivotal question, really. And I think uh, it, it, it is important for the listeners to understand that even before the pandemic uh, started out, we were already in dire straits in our country. If we look at the definition of overweight, it is linked to body mass index, and it relates to a body mass index between 25 and 30. Now, the normal body mass index should be between 20 and 25. Below 18 is seen as anorexia. Over 25 then is seen as overweight. And into the 30s, beyond 30, is when we start talking about obesity. And the difference between overweight and obesity is the presentation of associated disease conditions that comes on with obesity. So the ever-increasing weight leads to the development of diseases that we call comorbidities. Now, to to go back to the, the starting point, even before the COVID pandemic, we had a good 57% overweight situation in women in South Africa and a good 39 to 42% overweight figure or statistic for men in South Africa. We started on a poor base already. And now you can understand that if you had a body mass index of 29 before the pandemic and one then gained a good 10 kilograms, it pushes you into class one or even into class two obesity when these diseases then become important. So it's not as if we started as a healthy nation. We started as a an afflicted nation, a, a nation with a lot of comorbidities already related to overweight, which then just exacerbated during the process of the last year or so. And there's many explanations for that. But I think the, the important thing here is that there was a significant rise in unstructured time. People didn't commute to work anymore, but they were confined to their homes. There was a lot of unstructured time and boredom. And in in addition to that, there was a lot of stress, and we must appreciate this, and I think we must stress this. There was a lot of stress uh, involved. A lot of people lost their work. A lot of people were, were unsure about their futures. And that bad combination of unstructured time and stress then led to us indulging, eating wrongly, eating too much, and basically develop a habit of grazing rather than sitting down at a dinner table and eating a meal, we would graze right through the day. And that explains why most people, two-thirds of the population, actually gained weight. Very insightful stuff. Now, for the benefit of those still listening who who may have never fully orientated themselves to what causes obesity, you just touched on it very briefly at the tail end of your previous answer. 
Could you talk us through the leading causes of obesity? Yes. So, so it's, it's very interesting. I think um, uh, the most important, well, not the most important, the first thing to be said is it does run in families. One is born with an hereditary tendency to be overweight or to be fat. And we, you, you can see it in society that you see these families where father, mother, and all the children and the siblings are actually overweight. And they, there is a genetic predisposition for that. And it's interesting to note that there's 700 genes that in, in our bodies that code for weight gain or for code for obesity, which is related to survival. And there's only two genes that code for anorexia or weight loss. So this dates back in the time when humans were roaming the earth in the hunter-gatherer period where you would pick berries. And if you happened to be successful and fortunate enough to kill an animal, you would have food for the next couple of days. And then you would go hungry for another week or 10 days or so. So the body then adapted itself to always be geared up to retain calories to make fat, to store fat for the lean times that might follow if there's migration of animals or there's an, an ice age or there's, a, there's, there's winter and there's snow, etc. Now, obviously, we have cars and we drive to the nearest uh, chain store for our food. So we don't need those genes anymore, but those genes come to expression in our bodies. So that's the one cause. The one cause is a genetic predisposition. The second one would be behavioral. And that's eating disorders. And I think it's important for, for the listeners and for all of us to understand there's basically two reasons why people eat. The one is where your body tells you that you are really hungry. You need calories. You need energy. And I would imagine that's probably about a quarter of the times the, the indication or the, or the case. Most of us eat for emotional or psychological reasons, not because we are hungry. So you get stress eaters. They eat when they're under, under stress. You get reward eaters. When something goes well for you, you reward yourself with a big meal. And I just think, just think how we uh, entertain each other. You would always invite friends to come over for a bra. You never invite people to go climb Table Mountain on Saturday. I mean, that's not your invite. Your invite isn't, guys, come over and we're going to paddle to, to uh, Robben Island. That, that is not the invite. The invite is come over and let's have a nice bra and a couple of drinks. That's how we entertain. That's how we socialize. So there's this reward eating. So we enjoy it to eat. Then you get binge eating where people would open the fridge mid, mid time in the night, half past two in the morning, and they would empty the fridge. And you get, and I think the most dangerous one of this is the grazing where people don't sit down and have a meal, but they continue to eat little bits and drink little bits all through the day, like, like animals on a farm, and you never get satiated. You're never, you're never full. You're never satisfied. And you can continue eating far more than you would if you eat, eat a plate of food. And then the last one that I would mention is habitual overeating, where people would sit uh, around the table and they would force that last, last bit on the plate in, even though you may have received the message in your brain from your gut, look, I've had enough. You just force in that extra bit, and that's habitual overeating, which leads to 
uh, 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 desensitization of the hormone effect on your brain, your your brain area of satiety, and it also leads to overstretching of the stomach. So that's the second group of reasons for overweight, which is behavioral. And then the important thing for us to understand is there's a lot of hormonal disturbances, and hormones control both appetite and satiety. So there's a lot of hormones with grand names. There's ghrelin, which comes from the stomach. There's leptin, which comes from the fat cell. There's GLP-1, which is glucagon-like protein that comes from the small bowel. There's polypeptide Y, adiponectin. These are all names of hormones that gets released in relation to hunger, to food, after eating, and with satiety. And there is a development of either a reduced secretion of the hormones or overexpression of the, of the hormones, which can do one of two things. Either it stimulates hunger and therefore you eat, or it takes away appetite. It reduces appetite and then you continue to eat. And these hormones are uh, mostly the problems which is addressed with bariatric surgery. So people think that you do something to the stomach or to the small bowel mechanically, and you can, you can draw it on a, on a whiteboard what it, is, what it is that is done surgically, and it's because of that, that change in the anatomy that patients lose weight, but that's not the case. It is because of the change in the hormones. And these hormones are very, very powerful because they work on the primitive brain. And for the listeners to understand, humans have two brains. You have your primitive brain, which controls your breathing rate, your heart rate, your temperature, your basal metabolic rate. And then you have your thinking part of your brain. That is where reason is situated. Now, hunger is not within the reason portion of the brain. The reason portion of the brain can override the primitive brain and say, no, 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 you've had enough to eat. You're not going to indulge and have some further food or, or, or a sweet or a beverage or whatever. But nine out of ten times, the primitive brain overrides the thinking brain. And that's where these hormones work. They work in the primary brain. So these are basically the three pathways of why we are obese. And then the fourth one is lack of exercise. Now, I want to stress, you can't exercise your, yourself thin. Forget about that notion. Then you will have to exercise 18 hours of the day. You can't lose weight exercising, but you can maintain weight loss with exercise. So to lose weight, you have to do more than just exercise. You can't keep eating like a buffalo and exercise a lot and then think you're going to lose weight. You have to also change your attitude towards meals, towards food, how you prepare food, when you eat, what you eat, how much you eat, in addition to exercise. But lack of exercise certainly a fourth reason. Indeed. Now, Dr. Porkriter, you've just mentioned uh, bariatric surgery, and you yourself are a bariatric surgeon. So could you please inform our listeners about what your work entails and then also talk us through your expertise on the amount of danger that the South Africans already on uh, medication for comorbidities such as heart disease, diabetes and hypertension that currently stands at 59% according to a recent survey. Could you talk us yeah. through, could you talk us through uh, in your expertise how much further danger those South Africans are placed in thanks to the existence of this virus and this pandemic? So just apart from the COVID pandemic, just obesity per se carries a significant mortality and morbidity. In fact, 
if you look at in ever-increasing weight, which then relates to ever-increasing body mass index, in men, the most dangerous condition for men and the most frequent cause of death is cardiovascular events, which would be a heart attack or a cardiac arrest or a heart standstill and a stroke. And the biggest benefit that an obese man generates from losing weight or from having bariatric surgery or let's call it obesity surgery or metabolic surgery, doesn't matter what name one uses, the biggest benefit that a man can obtain from surgery is to reduce his cardiac risk. Now, to put it in perspective, that risk over a five-year period is reduced by 89%. I'm going to repeat it. It is reduced by 89%, which is very, very significant. So if somebody presents with a body mass index of 40, 45, and one can reduce that body mass index to 25, they will reduce their cardiac death rate by 18, 89% over a five-year period, and that equates to a uh, a, a, a benefit in survival, a survival benefit or longevity of between 12 and 16 years. So to reverse the argument, if you do nothing about your weight gain and you continue to gain weight and therefore your BMI continues to go up, you have an expectation, a life expectancy of between 12 to 16 years less than what you would have lived and survived had you been able to lose the weight. And that is where bariatric surgery comes in. It is to get to those people at a body mass index of 40 and above who have tried their level best to lose weight, who have now developed all the diseases that's associated with obesity, is to help them, to give them a kickstart to come below that BMI. Now, your second, second part of your question related to the conditions associated with obesity. And look, one doesn't die because you're obese. You die because of conditions that you acquire related to the obesity. And these conditions are type 2 diabetes, which can, which can progress into the type 1, which is the insulin-dependent one, high blood pressure, ischemic heart disease, atherosclerotic heart disease, then arthritis of the weight-bearing joints and back problems, sleep apnea, then there's gastroesophageal reflux, there's depression and other psychological afflictions, there's infertility among women as well as menstrual abnormalities, there's varicose veins, there's venous stasis, there's even blood clotting in the legs or in the pelvic veins. These clots can break loose and go through the heart into the lungs. That's called the pulmonary embolism. That can be fatal. There's cholesterol, obviously lipids, there's lipidemia, and very important now for women, cancer. So we know that, as I said, the biggest benefit a man can have from bariatric surgery, from obesity surgery, is reduction in heart death or cardiac death. The biggest benefit a woman gets from the surgery is reduction in the development of cancer. And this would be breast cancer. It would be womb cancer, which is called endometrial cancer. It would be ovary cancer or cervix cancer, as well as some of your other gut cancers. So that's the biggest benefit a woman gets. And the second biggest benefit is the reduction of the heart conditions. Now, having said 
said that South Africans were already running at the 57, 59% overweight in the female population, already at the 42% overweight in the male population, about 27% of South Africans are obese by definition, which means a body mass index of over 30. And a good percentage of those people then have these conditions that we've mentioned, the diabetes, the blood pressure. And those conditions carry a risk, a health risk, a mortality risk, a morbidity risk. And then added to this, we're now talking about the weight gain that people had because they were confined at home because of the, of the lockdown. And if you then happen to contract the virus, you can imagine this is the perfect storm. You can imagine you're stacking up all the odds against yourself. You start with an unhealthy body. You've gained weight over the COVID period. You've got all these associated conditions, which puts you at a very high risk from a cardiac point of view. And now you contract the virus and it attacks your whole system. It attacks your lungs. It attacks your clotting system and your blood vessels, etc., etc. And that is why obesity turned out to be one of the top three most dangerous conditions associated with COVID deaths or COVID mortality, the other being hypertension and diabetes. So of the three conditions that's most related to poor outcome with COVID was diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. And isn't it ironic that I mentioned the conditions that's associated with obesity was hypertension and diabetes, and you can really see the golden thread running through. Indeed. Now, Dr. Pochita, to conclude our conversation with one more two-handed question. You've just talked us through uh, bariatric surgery. Could you also talk us through how this surgery can be conducted on children if um, there are cases of children presenting high BMI levels um, that lead to childhood obesity? And to tie into that uh, part of the question, in your point of view, are we as a society having the necessary conversations on obesity and weight management, especially from a young enough age, considering I just mentioned uh, childhood obesity and in what further measures can we put in place to decrease the numbers of obesity across the country? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Thank you for that that question. But it is a very actually a broad question with a lot of a lot of aspects. So I will tackle them one by one. The first thing is yes, we do see adolescent obesity rising rapidly. We even see childhood obesity rapidly rising nowadays, and it's all related to family structure. Because what we saw during the COVID pandemic is, although about forty four percent of people said that they had gained weight. More than four-fifths of their siblings and cohabitants of the home also gained weight. So it's not individual people alone. It was the whole family gaining weight during the COVID. So that means there had to have been a change in their behavior, the way they prepared food, when they when they eat, how much they eat, what they eat, etc., etc. And so that's a critical part of why we see so much obesity in the childhood area as well as in the adolescent area. And yes, we can do so surgery for, for obesity in children. However, we are a little bit more circumspect about operating on small growing children because we do not want calorie as well as vital uh, vitamin, iron, protein, mineral, and, and, and trace element deficiencies in these children because then they have developmental abnormalities. So we would prefer to restrict bariatric surgery to your adolescent, that's your 14, 15, 16-year-old, rather than small growing children because of fear of deficiencies that might affect growth, both bone growth, 
brain growth as well as other growth in the body. That doesn't mean to say we must leave these children to continue gaining weight and, and, and do nothing about it. I think here we have a friend, and that friend is called a dietitian. And I think we have too little regard for the role that dietitians play in our lives. I think, obviously, when children become obese, when pets become obese in the household, it means that we're doing something wrong. Parents are doing something wrong, and they need to be put on the right path. And who's going to do that? That's the dietitian, because that person will investigate and create a synopsis of how do you live, when do you eat, what do you eat, how do you prepare your food, do you eat a balanced cooked meal, or is it fast foods from a drive-by restaurant that you eat every night? And there's research that shows that people that eat five cooked meals per week, only five, five cooked meals per week have a significantly lower tendency to be obese or to gain weight than people that do not eat a cooked meal, a cooked balanced meal, which contains high in protein. It contains your complex carbohydrates. It contains fats. It contains fruits. It contains nuts. It is a balanced diet. So that means it creates satiety. It creates satisfaction, which reduces your desire to snack in between meals. So that as far as children goes, they do what the parents do. And if, if it is so that the parents are not overweight but the child is overweight, then we back to the behavioral issues that we talked about earlier. That is you know, your uh, stress eating or boredom eating because the children are left at home in the afternoon. Both parents are working. They're sitting in front of the TV or with their smartphone. They're playing computer games. And they have all sorts of high-calorie, high-fat, uh, low-nutritious snacks with them, chips and sweets and all sorts of things. And that's what they, what they graze on the whole day. And that's exactly why they would gain weight. So once again, one has to investigate how, what is the relationship with food? When do we eat? How much do we eat? What is it that we eat? How is the food prepared, etc., etc. So those are the important things, I think, in behavioral change. And a lot of the hormonal disturbances can be addressed by eating the right foods at the right time. It's critical to critically important to understand we've got to go back to the habit or the custom of sitting around a dinner table and not eat on the run. We have to go sit at a dinner table, have a decent meal in peace with, with everybody around, sit around the table, eat your meal slowly so that the brain can get the message that you are satiated, you are full, you are satisfied, and then you look forward to your next meal, which is in six or whatever hours, and in between, eat nothing, drink nothing, and don't give in to the primitive brain that tells you you are hungry, because obviously you're not hungry an hour after the big meal. So a lot of that, I say, is emotional eating. So we've got to do away with emotional eating. So in terms of your second part of your question, who would we operate? We would operate on adolescents. So from age 15 to age 65 would more or less be the internationally accepted age group. But we are stretching the 65 now to 70 because uh, life expectancy is increasing in the world. And there may be the individual case where we would go down to, a, a, to an age group of 12 years. But that would be basically the group that we would operate. Our guest at this time, Dr. Andre Potrita, is a bariatric surgeon, joining us here on the COVID report to talk us through the link between this COVID-19 pandemic and how it has increased the numbers of, of 
weight gain across the populace of South Africa and how that dangerously creeps towards the terrain of obesity and also talking us through things we need to consider and things we need to look out for in order to make sure that obesity does not become more of a problem over the course of us fighting through this pandemic. Dr. Porkhita, thank you so much for uh, your time and your expertise and the insight that you've given us into this discussion. Thank you so much for joining us here on the COVID report. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or stream by www.vafm.co.za.